are going to be continuing on today in our Sermon on the Mount series. And we've been working on the Beatitudes uh, throughout this time. But now we're going to be shifting as we move into verses 13 to 16 today, our sermon text, to something a little bit different in this Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read for us the text and please follow along here on the screen. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, as we've been going through this series, working through beatitude after beatitude, it's been really clear that verses 3 to 12 here would really describe the, uh, a picture of what a believer's life is to look like. And if you were to take all those things and put them together, it really is a beautiful portrait of Christians who are to be people who are uh, dedicated to loving God first and foremost, a vertical component, but also a horizontal component that is loving their neighbors and loving other people, being merciful, being peacemakers on the earth. Now, here in this text, Jesus is moving from describing the characteristics of believers to describing actually their function in the world. So we're going to look at this thing, uh, the two metaphors that he uses, salt and light, one at a time. Now the first metaphor that he uses, salt, here, we have to ask the question is, what does he mean by this? You know, salt has quite a few different valuable properties. And the question is, what property, what about salt is Jesus actually focusing on here? Now, when we speak English... You know, we understand how to use metaphorical expressions. So, for example, we might look at a girl and someone might say, that girl's a gem. And by that, we understand that the speaker is saying that that girl is unique, she's precious, and she's particularly valuable. That's what we understand to be the metaphor to be communicating. What the speaker is not saying is that the girl is hard, obtuse, unyielding, or capable of crushing anybody in her path, like a tough diamond. So that's not how the metaphor works. We know intuitively that the metaphor is not about toughness, but rather about the rareness of gems. Now, I think it's very similar for salt in terms of what it's referring to. It's something specific Jesus is getting at. Now, I know the majority of commentators and Bible scholars and pastors, people normally talk about how salt is a preservative agent. And they argue that what's going on here is that Christians really are preserving a society from descending into moral decay. So you, just as you rub like salt, you know, into meat in the ancient world to keep it from rotting, so also you rub Christians into society so that society doesn't reach unparalleled, unprecedented heights of evil. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, this idea that Christians are a benefit to society. And in fact, if you look at Christian history, it really is quite true that Christians have done an immense amount of good for societies. 
So, for example, if you go back in history and you look at the examples of early Christians, you will see that in the Roman early Roman or early Christianity during the Roman Empire, Christians actually went out into the streets and collected the babies that were discarded and thrown out, unwanted like trash, into the streets by families who didn't want them anymore. Christians took them in and adopted these children. You know, it was conscientious Christians like William Wilberforce who fought for the abolition of slavery in England. You have others, for example, like Christian missionaries like William Carey, who went to serve the people of India, and there he helped stamp out a practice called sati, which was when a husband died, the widow was expected to go and jump on his funeral pyre and burn herself to death as well. So it was Christians like Wilberforce and the Sarampore missionaries who put an end to these things. And that's a good thing. That's a good stuff that Christians have done. But at the same time, if you look at this text, I think that that kind of benefit is just part of what Jesus intended here. It's not the full thing. I think that the text actually goes beyond this. It goes beyond the act of just doing good deeds. And I have two reasons for that. Let's read verse 13 again to see them. Text says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Do you notice the first thing that it doesn't say in this text? It doesn't say, but if salt has lost its ability to preserve, but rather it says that if it's lost its ability to taste, or it's lost its taste, so you can't taste it. It's about taste, I think, here, and not preservative qualities. So the main idea here is that somehow or another, Christians living in the world are to end up on the tongues of unbelievers and to be experienced by them as being particularly tasty. Now, it doesn't mean, I think, here that every unbeliever will taste, but that when they do taste, there will be a good kind of taste. The second thing that we notice in the last half of the verse here is the incredibly strong language that is used to describe the utter worthlessness of unsavory salt. In fact, it says basically here that it's good for nothing except literally to be thrown out and to be trampled on. And when you think about this uh, image that's given here, and then you look through the Bible, you realize that there are other sections of the Bible that present equally frightening imagery. You know, I'll give you a couple of these texts. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30, it says there about the worthless servant who squandered the master's talents and did not use them well, that this servant was to be cast out into the utter, outer darkness. You read, for example, in Revelation 3, Jesus speaking about the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Jesus actually says of them, I will spit you out of my mouth for your compromisedness. Hebrews chapter 10, the same word that's for trampling is used here in this text to actually describe those who mock Christ or despise him by deliberately sinning as they trample underfoot the Son of God. They show their utter disdain for the work of Jesus Christ by the way that they actually live. 
Now it's interesting, when you put all those texts together and you look at it, you notice that all these texts are actually directed at those who profess to know Jesus, but don't actually live in a way which makes them look like followers of Jesus Christ. Like it's really serious here. And all these texts suggest that this seems to go beyond the loss of just something that occurs in society or even good that's done for society. So what exactly does it mean for a Christian then to be salt? Now I think really in order to answer this question well, we actually need to look at verse 14 which has a parallel structure to verse 13 here. And the two of them put together will help us understand what this salt and light image is communicating. Verse 14. You can follow along. The text says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, in this text here, we gain some additional information as we learn from this metaphor that Christians are supposed to illuminate the world. Now, this language of light giving actually comes straight from the Old Testament. So, for example, if you look at Isaiah chapter 49, uh, verse 6, It reads this way. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now now you see in this text here that there is a linkage between the idea of light and salvation. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, Matthew having this Old Testament imagery in his head recognizes that Jesus is the one and then he also applies another Isaiahic passage, Isaiah 9-2, to Jesus which he quotes in Matthew chapter 4 verse 16. And he says this, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, this is remarkable, right? Because it's very clear from this that this isn't about physical light, but it's about spiritual light. And this light has to be associated with the work and person of Jesus Christ, right? So the light and salvation of the Old Testament is finding its fulfillment in the work and person of Jesus. And Jesus understands this. Like, he knows he is the light. That's why he says, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in our text, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's saying, You are the light of the world. John chapter 8, 12, he's saying, I'm the light of the world. Here he says, You are the light of the world. What's he getting at here? Well, I think the first thing to understand is Jesus is not contradicting himself here. I don't think he's confused. But what actually he's doing is quite radical. See, the Old Testament was very clear that the Messiah was going to bring light, that is spiritual light and salvation to the world. He would be a blessing to the nations. Yet here, what Jesus is showing by his speaking 
is that there is something new that is occurring in God's plan of salvation with his coming. That is, Jesus here is adding a new dimension that was not seen in the Old Testament so clearly about the saving plans of God. And he shows here that actually his followers are going to be part and parcel of God disseminating his light of salvation into the world. So Messiah brings light, but the Messiah's followers are going to be part of reflecting that light out to the world. And just as a city set on a hill can't be hidden, neither can disciples of Jesus, his followers, avoid having their light be seen. In fact, that's the very purpose of being a follower of Jesus, to have your light be seen for the glory of God. Look at verse 15 again. What does it say? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. You know, if I were to compare Christians, let's say, to to salt, I think there's a lot of similarities, like in one sense, in that we do come in different flavors, right? Like Canadian Baptists, Korean Presbyterians, persecuted underground Chinese believers. We all have a slightly different flavor about us. However, despite the differences, at the core, we're all still like salt. We're all still made out of the same stuff, okay? So unity in Christ Jesus does not demand uniformity across the board. But what this text here is teaching us here is that there is no such thing as a non-light-bringing Christian. That is not an acceptable type of flavor. It's not valid, All sorts of Christians, regardless of your stripes, are to be light bringers. You know, sometimes when I ask people about their Christian walk, you know, where they go to church and how they're following Jesus right now, sometimes they try to say to me that Christianity is just a personal thing. You know, it's very private. You know, I don't talk about it really with anyone else. And, you know, but the truth of the matter is Jesus really would not consider that to be an option, Yes, of course, there's a personal decision that has to be made as a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't just inherit Christianity because you were born into a family in which mom and dad were believers. You have to make a personal decision, but it's a personal decision that leads you into a very public kind of life. Like, just imagine there was a, a, a Canadian soldier who only works out at the gym, but, you know, he never reports to a commanding officer, never uh, shows up for training at the barracks, never goes to war. See, it doesn't matter what that soldier calls himself. The Canadian military would look at that soldier and say, that's not one of ours. See, the job description of a disciple involves witnessing public exposure A life that radiates the person of Jesus Christ. Now, just to be clear here, public exposure does not mean that if you live in a persecuted country, that you need to run out into the streets and basically say, I'm a Christian here, come and kill me. It's not what he's saying here. I I think that in those situations, you know, you can shine your light in your particular spheres of influence in your circles, like, like your office setting, people who are close to you, family members and friends, those that God brings into your life. In countries like North America, it could be a mom's gathering 
or your private WhatsApp group you have with your old high school friends, you know, whatever it is, the point is that the people around you over time should not be able to help but see the light that radiates out of you, and that is the light of Jesus Christ. You know, someone once famously said it this way, there can be no such thing as secret discipleship, for either the secrecy destroys the discipleship or the discipleship destroys the secrecy. See, disciples have to be as visible as light in the night. You know, cities in the ancient world were very, very dark places, unlike modern cities that are full of electrical light. And if you simply lit a candle somewhere in the city, you could see it very, very clearly. A single lamp that was burning in the light was visible to all in the house, and if you took it outside, down the street as well. See, to become comfortable with invisibility is actually to deny the master who made you. And the master who says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus doesn't say, come and follow me, and I'll make you invisible chameleons that blend into whatever background there is so that nobody can see you. It's about visibility. You know, Richard Wurmbrandt was uh, a famous pastor in Romania who lived basically during the communist regime. And when the communists took over, one of the first things that they did was they gathered a group of some 4,000 pastors and, and, and priests and other clergy together, and they took them to a great hall uh, where there was a picture of the Russian dictator of the Soviet Union, Joseph Stalin. And under the threat of torture and death, all these pastors, one after another, got up and went to the microphone and began speaking about how the goals of Christianity and the goals of communism were compatible and basically the same. And as pastor after pastor went up and said this to much applause, Richard Wurmbrand's wife, Sabina, was sitting there was furious, and she turned to her husband and she said, Richard, stand up. And wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They're spitting in his face. And Richard said to her, If I do so, you lose your husband. To which she replied, I don't wish to have a coward for a husband. And so, Richard got up to speak. And he got up to that microphone and grabbed it and declared that a pastor's first loyalty is to Jesus Christ and that his goal and duty is to bring glory to God. And therefore, his first loyalty cannot be to earthly powers. You know, as a result of him speaking that, they cut off his microphone, ushered him off the stage, and they ended the meeting right there and then. And soon afterwards, Richard Wurmbrandt was taken away by the secret police and put into jail, and for which he suffered immensely. See, why do Christians exist? According to this text, it is for the purpose of giving God's light to places that are dark. See, to be a Christian is to be a light bringer and a darkness chaser. You know, the, Jesus' teaching that the world is a dark place is really unpopular in today's world. You know, the average North American believes that society is generally good and continues to get better and better, and it's really only a few bad eggs that make this place bad. 
You know, we're really horrified as we look back in history by Canaanite cultures that offered up babies onto the arms of metal idols so that they could be burned to death to appease the gods. We look back and we condemn the Romans for being barbaric in their love for gladiatorial fights. Yet, I would say, despite the own high view of our culture, other cultures looking at us judge us and frown on certain aspects of our culture. In fact, South Americans are largely horrified by our abortion laws. Asians, for example, are shocked by our disrespect towards the elderly and to our parents. You look at Middle Easterners, they're absolutely scandalized by our promiscuous sexuality. Like, who is right here? If you were to leave all the cultures of the world to judge each other, most of the cultures would point their fingers at other cultures and say, you guys are wrong. If any culture is evil, it's not mine, it's yours. I mean, who is right in all of this? You know what the answer is according to God's word, according to the culture that Jesus Christ envisions? All of you are wrong. The whole world actually is shrouded in darkness. Nobody is right. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And not a single culture on this earth accurately represents what God wants us to be. Every society walks in darkness and walks in sin before holy God. And only through the light of Jesus Christ can the darkness actually be pushed away. You know, Christian missionary pilot Joyce Lynn, who died just this last week, carrying medical supplies in her plane to combat COVID-19, once wrote to counter critics who accused Western Christians of destroying the culture of native peoples around the world and their way of life. She said this, Before anyone objects to Christians or Westerners changing the way other people live, it's important to know that Papua, Papua New Guinea was not a tropical paradise before the arrival of Christian missionaries. In fact, Papuan tribes lived to kill one another. People lived in constant fear of other tribes and the spirit world. You know, 100 years ago, People in our society thought that science, technology, uh, democracy would usher in unprecedented world peace. And yet, what did the 20th century show us? Two world wars, the slaughters of millions of people under crazy dictators, mass killings and riots. All those things really destroyed the optimism and showed that the hopes and aspirations of 100 years ago were really nothing more than a pipe dream. See, the short of it is that the world is truly a dark place and actually needs the light of Jesus Christ. That's why verse 16 actually reads like this. God recognizes the need. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Okay, from this text, why should believers let their light shine? Two reasons here in the text, so that they may, one, see your good works, and, number two, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we need to ask the question is, how is that possible? Like, we as believers who love Jesus know how to give glory to God, but what does it mean that an unbeliever is actually going to glorify God? How is that possible? 
I think the Bible gives us some clues and indications as to how this is possible. For example, in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17, we have the story of Jesus raising a widow's son to life. And when the crowd sees it, the text says basically that they declare that a great prophet has risen amongst us, and they say God has visited his people. In Matthew chapter 9, after Jesus heals a paralytic, it says there that the crowd glorified God who gave such authority to men. Acts 3 is very similar. It records the apostles Peter and John healing a blind man in the name of Jesus, and the crowds, their reaction is to gasp and to be utterly amazed. They're astonished at this. So question, how do unbelievers glorify God? And the answer to that, I think, is unbelievers glorify God by consciously acknowledging that a good work or a miracle that is performed is done by God himself. And in order for this to happen, I think two things actually need to be accomplished. One is they actually need to see the work that is done. And the second thing is that they need to hear from the disciples, from God followers, that this is the result of God's work or his strength. See, I think a declaration is important because people will naturally try to rationalize or explain away events that occur apart from God. And every time that the apostles did miracles or they preached, they made sure in no uncertain terms that it was purely the power of God that accomplished what the people saw. I think it's critical for us to understand this because if we treat people's bodies and we don't treat their souls with spiritual medicine, we do them a great disservice. And in fact, we doom them to eternal death and damnation and judgment. This is why it's so important, I think, for both demonstration of deeds and declaration about Jesus to go hand in hand with each other. All Christian work actually has to be done in such a way that Jesus increases and we decrease. And it's not simply enough to do good deeds. Because if you do not explain to people where these deeds, the source of their power comes from, people might actually mistakenly attribute to you either great strength, skill, or even worse, divinity. You know, in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas heal a lame man. And after that, the crowds actually try to worship them as Zeus and Hermes. And at that, the text tells us they tear their clothes and they run out into the crowd. And they say, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men just like you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and everything that's in it. Don't worship us. You know, when Cornelius, for example, meets the apostle Peter... In Acts chapter 10, he actually drops to the ground and tries to, like, worship him. But Peter immediately lifts him off of the ground and says to him, You stand up! I am also a man. Revelation. When John, the apostle, sees the glorious angel, he tries to fall down before the angel and bow before the angel. But the angel actually rebukes him. And he says, you must not do that. 
I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. See, what's at stake here that can produce this sort of very powerful and vehement reactions in Peter and Paul and Barnabas and even an angel of God? Why are they so quick to say, don't worship us? And the answer to that is robbery. Actually, robbery of the worst kind. It's not a robbery of wealth or riches, but the robbery of glory from the living God. And this, my friends, is a crime of unimaginable magnitude and proportions. Not just because we committed the act of stealing, but we have stolen the priceless glory of God that belongs to Him alone by absorbing praise and worship that should be given to Him. You know, God says of Himself, I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other. You know, do you know what we call human beings? who demand praise from others, we call them megalomaniacs. We know something is wrong with them, right? And if they actually have government power to enforce that, we actually call them dictators. And do you know why we despise them? We despise them because we know that no single human being is worthy of our complete and utter devotion, praise, and worship. No human being alive. Well, what about a being who is infinitely glorious, infinitely valuable, infinitely gracious, infinitely good, who declares the beginning from the end, who has no equal in heaven and on earth and under the earth? To praise such a being, our God, is not wrong, but in fact is absolutely and completely right unquestionably so. He deserves everything from us. In fact, to not worship Him will be absolutely wrong. See, do you know what sin really is? It's not just the breaking of some rules, but actually the real root of sin is a deep desire in the heart to play God and to be our own God. See, when we insist on other people praising us, and we take pride in their obedience to us, we're in effect demanding the worship of ourselves as some form of God. So when we choose to run our own lives while ignoring the one who actually made us, we are actually demanding that God abdicate His throne, get off of it, and give us that throne so we can sit on it and rule. And this, against the King of all the universe, is absolute blasphemy. And this is a blasphemy that every single human being on the planet, without exception, is guilty of. You know, friends, when you realize the absolute magnitude of the crime of sin, what sin really is at essence, and how it's a crime against a heavenly king, do you realize just how great the salvation is that Jesus brings for us? Do you realize just how valuable His grace is to wipe out that kind of stain over us? I mean, if you struck the king of England back in the day, you could have had your head cut off. 
Can you imagine what it is like? The level of injury and insult we have given to the king of all the universe, not by slapping him in the face, but by ordering him off of his throne and demanding that we be installed on there and that he serve us. You know, this is why we love Jesus Christ so much, because Jesus, through His death on the cross, wiped away the stain of our insult against God, our sin, and gave us His perfect record of righteousness so that we could live free and we could be saved. That's why we as Christians love Jesus Christ so much. See, this is so important to understand, because if salt and light is about pointing towards the glory of God. It means that every good work that we do needs to point to God and be consistent with a lifestyle that honors this God. You know, we want unbelievers to honor and glorify this God because that is absolutely right. How is it that unbelievers can glorify God? I think unbelievers can glorify God only if they understand, they really understand that the good works that they see are done by the power of God and they can worship Him for what He's worth. And that's why I think good works always have to be paired with Christ-exalting words and Christ-like humility. See, and if this is true, this actually helps us answer our two questions that we had at the beginning. Number one, how are Christians salt? The answer to that is Christians are the salt of the earth when their lives flavor the world so that people can taste and experience the true goodness of God. That's what it means, I think, for Christians to be salt. And the second question, how are Christians light? And the answer to that is Christians are light in the world when they allow people to perceive the truth of God regarding salvation as they do good work and acknowledge Jesus Christ in all that they do. That's how Christians function as light in the world. See, it's not just about doing good works. It's about pointing people to God. See, a good work is actually no good work in the truest sense of the word if it actually doesn't lead people to glorify God. You can have an unbelieving businessman who is very generous with his money, builds orphanages, develops medical treatments for horrible diseases around the world, does all these worthy causes. But you know, in God's eyes, such an individual is actually not a God-honorer, even though he has done many decent things. This individual is still guilty of robbing God of His glory by failing to acknowledge that His very own strength, His ability to breathe, the mind that He has, the wealth that He has, is nothing short of a gift from God Himself. Unless that is actually acknowledged, you rob God of His glory. You know, the answers from Christians are so different you know, if you were to ask Christians who have done great things in this world, and you were to interview them, they would speak so very differently. George Mueller and his associates took care of over 10,000 orphans during the course of that man's lifetime. If you were to ask him, for instance, Mr. Mueller, how is it that it is possible for you to take care of so many of these children and provide for their needs? George Mueller would have said to you, it wasn't me. 
but Christ through us, who fed and clothed these very own children. Not me. If you were to ask the great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man who was known for preaching multiple times a week, running orphanages, and doing all sorts of other incredible things, a man who was zealous for love and good works, if you were to ask him, Mr. Spurgeon, how is it that you can do two men's work in a single day? Mr. Spurgeon would have said, you have forgotten that there are actually two of us who are at work here. See, this is how Christians who have done great things for God acknowledge God in all that they do and give Him the proper glory that He deserves. You know, if you're listening to this today, let me ask you a question. How do you feel when people praise you? What do you do with it? Do you actually revel in their praise? Think a lot about yourself? Or do you redirect that praise to Jesus Christ? So when people praise you for your compassion, do you think to yourself, oh, I'm a very compassionate individual? Or do you remind people that the compassion that you have for others is pales in comparison to the compassion that Jesus Christ had on your soul? And when people praise your generosity, do you tell them about the generosity of God towards you, of your Lord and Savior who was rich but became poor for your sake and offers you a treasure in heaven where thieves do not break in and steal and is secure for all eternity? You know, when people look at you in pity because you come from a broken family, do you tell them about the absolute joy you have in an unfailing heavenly Father? See, a Christian who loves Jesus is happiest when he is reflecting and not eclipsing God's glory. That's why Christians always have to exalt Jesus in their words and in their deeds. You know, I've often heard people quote from Francis of Assisi saying, Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. You know, this is so wrong. You know, Francis of Assisi never actually said that. Guy was a fiery preacher himself. See, good, doing good works is not the same as preaching the gospel. We must never confuse the two, but we should never separate the two either. They have to go hand in hand. Gospel preaching... Without deeds, it's like faith without works. That's dead faith. It's useless. But deeds actually without the declaration of Jesus Christ may actually lead to you being worshipped as somebody else's God. And that's blasphemy. And you know, we fail as light to the world if people only see our good works but cannot see our God because of our silence. We fail, actually, as salt of the earth if people cannot taste the sweetness and savor of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be worthless. You may have ten talents, but if people can only see you and not your God, it's worthless. It's a big problem. See, a Christian who ultimately doesn't point to God, I would say, is a Christless Christian. Now, I know it's an oxymoron, but it ultimately is a person who is not a disciple of Jesus. And I think North American churches are actually full of them. You know, friends, if you were to look at your life, let me ask you, are you a Christless Christian? 
Does being a Christian to you mean loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is it just showing up on Sunday once a week or flipping on your TV today or your mobile device to watch this live stream and then living however you want? Do you find in your soul an absolute hatred for your sin and when people bring up sin in your life, you're repentant about it, crushed by the weight of it, and desirous to change so that you can look more like Jesus? Or do you get angry, try to justify, hide your own sin, and refuse to deal with it? See, or are you anxious when people don't praise you? When the love of your life leaves you, do you get all nervous about it? Is your hope in other things or is your hope ultimately in Jesus? You know, all of us struggle with this more or less in some cases or another. But that's ultimately that what resides inside of you. Be so careful with that. Or you might tip and become very much a Christless Christian. See, what do you live for? Do you live for the kingdom of heaven or do you live for the fleeting pleasures of this world? See, the Christless Christian is actually the worst hypocrite of all. Because their good works actually lead people to walk the exact same road that they walk. That is the broad road that leads to destruction. And my point is this. Savorless salt, guess what? Is not salt at all. But it's just dirt. And it's useless. And a Christless Christian is nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. You know what hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy is not being able to be, you know, to, be, to live a... Hypocrisy is not that we as Christians just, you know, we sin, Okay. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect as Christians, you know. It's not just that we sin. You know, the Bible tells us that when we do sin, we have Jesus Christ, an advocate, who stands in our defense. But when a Christian sins, we repent and we turn to God. Christless Christian hypocrisy is sinning and not seeing a need to repent of those sins or to turn. Saying we're followers of Jesus, but living a completely different way. See, you don't need to be an atheist to be a God despiser. You just need to put God in second place. Just second place. And all throughout the Bible, this is what God condemned the children of Israel for. Offering up their burnt offerings to Him while their hearts were so far from Him. See, this is not what true Christians are like. And God, I think, is ultimately glorified in the lives of unbelievers when the unbelievers see the Christians the way that they live and they taste and see their God, they see the light of Jesus, and they turn their lives over to Him. You know, I know that for a number of you here, maybe you're just nervous actually about sharing Jesus because you don't know what other people are going to say about you. You don't know what they're going to think. You're worried that they'll ruin their relationships uh, with you. But... Let me just remind you here that the God that we are glorifying is not some distant God that we need to be ashamed of, but actually He is an incredibly loving Father. You know here in verse 16, this is actually the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus actually introduces God with this phrase, Father in Heaven. And as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, 15 other times, basically Jesus uses this phrase 15 times to refer to God, Father in Heaven, Father in Heaven. And you learn a lot about this Father in Heaven, right? That He's loving to both the good and the unjust. That He's merciful. That He takes care of His children. He provides for their needs. He comforts them. He gives them forgiveness. All of these things. You know, why does Jesus over and over again refer to God as the Father in Heaven? 
And I think the answer to that is because Jesus wants us to understand that this new system, this new kingdom that he is bringing in here is not just an introduction to a new set of rules, but actually an introduction to a new relationship. See, it's about experiencing intimacy with God as a father and not distance. See, all throughout the sermon, this is what we're learning when we see this phrase over and over again, Father in heaven, and this is who we are introducing people to. To see the glory of our Father who is in heaven. See, if Christianity is just a system to you, you're always going to struggle to shine your light towards other people. But if Christianity is a living relationship with Jesus Christ, and knowing God as your Heavenly Father, it will be your absolute joy to want to introduce others to Him. You know, I really just have two application points for us, friends. Brothers and sisters who are listening today, just two things I want to say. If this is all true, then one, what we are to do as Christians is to demonstrate our good works in Jesus' name. And the second thing then is to declare Jesus' name as we do our good works. That's what we are to do with our lives. Live as Jesus would and declare Jesus to others. This is how God will get glory in the lives of people around us. You know, I want to encourage you today that if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you understand that you were once dead and lost in your sins and your trespasses, and that Jesus saved you and showed you His complete grace, and you are grateful for that, I just want to urge you, go out then and live in the freedom that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord. You know, if you're a father here, I want to encourage you not to give in to passivity, but to be bold for Jesus with leading your family through devotionals, Christ-honoring holidays and activities, and speech on an everyday basis. And let your children see you both in your strength in Jesus, but also in your humanity, your weakness, and how you run to the prayer closet and you throw yourself on your knees and pray to the Lord. Let them learn humility and dependence on Jesus by your example. I know there's a number of you ladies who are listening here. You have unbelieving spouses. And it's my hope for you that in your gentle, with, your, with the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, that you too will be able to be salt and light to your unbelieving husbands and win them, as Peter says, without a word to Jesus Christ. You know, I know a number of you, for example, are in high school right now or you're in college, and I just want to urge you not to be like the world and all your peers are, but to set them an example, as Paul says, in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, in purity. Do not look like the world. You're to be in the world, yet not of the world. Don't rob your peers of the ability to see Jesus Christ by the darkness that you clothe yourself with, but clothe yourself with the light of Jesus Christ so that they may see Him and turn to Him and find salvation for their souls. Don't squander that opportunity you have as a young person. You know, some of you listening to this today might not be Christians And I just want to urge you and remind you that Jesus Christ right now is speaking to you and He's calling you to Himself. Maybe you find that your heart is stirred by this because you have tasted Christians and you have found a sweetness in them that you've never found elsewhere. Or you've seen something through this message like that has light flooding your soul and your heart. I would urge you to turn your life over to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and start something new with Him. You know, if you're a believer here and you've been a Christless Christian... I would just urge you to repent as well of your sins and to turn yourself back to Jesus and to trust Him 
for everything in your life and to help Him mold you to be salt and light to those around you. You know, my friends, we are called to be salt and light to a watching world. And it's my prayer that we would learn humility in the way that we bow so that people would have an unobstructed view of our Savior. In whatever role we're called to do in this world, whether it's unnoticed or noticed, great or small, may God get the glory by our Christ-like actions and our Christ-like words. May we have the joy of seeing God get the glory by leading other people to know Him and to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You for Your love for us. And thank You for making us faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Father, I just ask that You would help us to live each day in Your love, not to steal Your precious glory, but to reflect it to a world I pray, Father, for people everywhere here. And whether it's a mom that's chopping vegetables for our little children and being patient with them as they throw temper tantrums to know that they have the privilege of reflecting the glory of God in that moment to their children as their children look at them, may not get it right there and then, but later, O oh God, be thankful to you for the gracious spirit that you gave mom as she was patient. Father, I pray, God, in whatever jobs we might hold, when we are mistreated and we struggle, oh God, with anger, I pray, Father, you would give us grace and humility to represent Jesus so that when people look at us, they don't taste violence, but they taste the sweetness of Jesus. And that they'll want that and be led to you, oh God, and glorify your holy name. God, what a joy it is for us to be crushed to go through suffering and trial, if only we get to be your salt and light to this world. Thank you, Father, for giving us the privilege of following a Messiah who allows us to shine his glorious light into the world. So, Father, we thank you for this. Give us courage and joy as we pursue you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.